Welcome to the talkie bit. I think I said this last week, but even if I did, I would like to say it again. We don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. In other words, our perspective is the thing that most deeply informs our experiences and our understanding of the world around us. Now, that does not sit easily beside ideas about truth that many of us might have grown up around. Basically, it's at substantial odds with the notion that there's something, you know, out there called objective truth, at least to the degree that such a thing might be accessible to us as human beings. And that gap is partly what I've been trying to explore when I talk about this idea that reality is what doesn't go away even if we stop believing in it. That's That touches on that, that dilemma and that intersection. So, just to give us kind of a starting place for today's exploration, let's say that there's a gap between what we perceive and what is unchanging, assuming, and many do not, that there is something unchanging you know, out there. And that means, among other things, that whatever we experience or understand to be real is partial, it's incomplete, it's perspectival, it's the way we are in the world. That's how we experience that. And that would include, and this is, we're just going to go into philosophy land here for a moment. That would include our understanding of ourselves, which has everything to do with what we believe because it's the self that does the believing. That's who the believer is, is the self. I hope that makes sense. Maybe it's just way too early for that kind of brain work. In some ways, the next few minutes of this exploration may be the hardest to consider, but Just stay with me, and we'll get to the way that it works in lived experiences and stories. There's a a person named Gregory Burns. Uh, Burns is a professor of psychology and distinguished professor of neuroscience at Emory University in the States. Uh, Burns has a new book out just this past October called The Self-Delusion, colon, The New Neuroscience of How We Invent and Reinvent Our Identities. And full disclosure, I haven't read the book. These ideas are drawn from an interview that I heard with him that I found quite fascinating. Uh, It's a book I would like to read. I don't know if there's a moratorium on such books in our house before Christmas, but there's something like it. And uh, so anyway, we'll see. Burns makes an interesting and perhaps at least initially disconcerting claim about who he understands us to be as humans. We all, he says, know that we tell stories about ourselves. But, and this is a a big but, he says, we don't just tell stories about ourselves, we are our stories. And that is unique to us as human beings. Only humans tell stories, and only humans tell stories about themselves. When Burns is challenged in this a little bit in the interview, as regards the, our growing understanding of animal cognition, He responded by acknowledging that he has also studied animal cognition for decades and feels very aware and is very impressed with the cognitive capacities that animals have, including, uh, as I learned this past week, much more of a deliberate use of language from the human perspective than we had initially thought. But he contends that even taking all of that into account, only humans tell themselves stories to make sense of the world around them. He says it this way, quote, The stories we tell are the glue that links together what would otherwise be a frighteningly random 
world. The stories we tell are the glue that links together what would otherwise be a frighteningly random world. In other words, we tell stories to keep that particular fear, a random world, as well as fear in general, at bay, to keep it out there where we can, you know, handle it a little better. Which, I think that's an easy, relatively easy thing to acknowledge, at least from my perspective, it certainly seems like it, it fits fairly well with lived experience and a, a longer view of human history and how we behave. But it does also raise a question for me, which is, why does the idea that life might be random or uncertain distress us so much? Why does the unexpected feel like it has um, a disproportionate weight or impact? Burns suggests that uncertainty is inherently aversive to humans and to many animals for a couple of significant reasons. These, these reasons would be more on the human side of things. First of all, most of our life experience suggests that the world isn't random most of the time. It doesn't change that much from day to day. And so, secondly, our brains have evolved with that pattern in view. And subsequently, we are best equipped from a neurological point of view to evaluate things in a way that corresponds to that experience. So, in other words, we're neurologically best equipped to deal with thinking of life as relatively certain. Both words in that little couplet are important. Relatively certain. And that said... He goes on in that conversation that I was listening to to acknowledge there will be times, there will be days, there will be years when uncertainty is high. And we could argue that we live now in such a time, a time when our predictions might fail for a variety of reasons. Uh, I think we all had um, some immersive experiences of that, especially early in the pandemic, when all of a sudden the research about what we were experiencing ratcheted up and the information was flooding in. We had all of a sudden, we had a bunch of new data, um, but not really enough time to make patterns out of it that were predictive. And yet, making predictive patterns was one of the things that people who were communicating with the public felt like they really needed as a tool because predictive patterns are, as we've just discussed, reassuring. They fit with the way our brains work. And so they would say, here's what's likely to happen. And then when that didn't happen, all of a sudden they, they're getting slagged as unreliable. You can't trust the science and so on and so forth. That's all connected to what we're talking about here. It's all sort of part of that bundle of how we function, right? So as humans, we tend to experience this, these kind of periods of uncertainty, times when our predictions aren't behaving the way that we're used to. We tend to experience this as uniquely terrifying because... And again, a uniquely human thing, we're aware of our own mortality. If things don't go as planned, we experience and perceive that as danger. We now don't know what will happen next, which makes it hard to plan for or to safeguard against. And planning for what will happen next and safeguarding against the things that might happen next that would endanger us, that's stuff we're hardwired for. Right? So you can sort of see where the rub, right? So this is one way to consider why animals, as far as we can tell, don't tell themselves stories. They are not aware in the conscious self sense of aware of their mortality. So one of the ways we deal with that terror, that sense that we might be sort of ultimately vulnerable in the sense that our life would be in danger, one of the ways we deal with that terror is by telling ourselves stories. Now, 
<laughs> if we follow Gregory Burns sort of all the way down, uh, we find ourselves in the more than somewhat philosophical space of not being, quote, selves with stories, close quote, but, quote, selves that are stories, close quote. In other words, he's basically saying that the idea of a unified, persistent self, an idea most of us probably take for granted, he's saying that the idea of a unified, persistent self is a kind of illusion, and that it would be more accurate to understand ourselves as multiple selves at different moments in time, not at the same moment in time, an important distinction, but that those multiple selves at different moments in time are tied together by story, and that this sort of bundle of stories is what we call our self. Now, we're not going to pursue that any further, at least not today, uh, not least of all because philosophy at that level might have even less fans in the community than poetry does, but also because I think we've already got in hand uh, the idea that I want to work with today. Now, that said, if you think that sounds intriguing, you know, read, read the book and, uh, and give me or give us the Coles notes. That would, be, that would be lovely. If we can work in this talky bit with the general idea that the self is a story that you tell, then we don't have to be neuroscientists. We don't have, a, have to have a PhD in psychology that comes with some understanding of how that all functions in order to begin to imagine how we might engage with stories to make changes in our lives. We can, we can just pick it up at that point. If a self is the story that we tell ourselves, then we can work with that and think about, so then how might we, how might we use that understanding of the self as a platform for change? One way to think about what we need to do to make positive changes in our lives is to tell ourselves a better story, or to put it in sort of a less quantified way, a story that works better, or sort of a more pragmatic way, a story that works better for us. This is, so let me put this into the context of why we exist as a community at the table, this is one way to frame what we're doing when we take what we believe and reconsider it or examine it. We're, we're telling, or we're asking ourselves, rather, if the story that we've been told or that we have come to tell ourselves about how the world works, the one that helps to keep it in a place where we feel like we can live in it without freezing up in terror, when we do this kind of work of, of exploring what we believe, we're asking ourselves if the story that we've been told or that we've come to tell ourselves is still working for us, or if perhaps it needs to change. And one of the things that Burns' idea of, the, of these sort of multiple selves held together by story, one of the things that does, I think, is really open up permission or possi the possibility of changing the story by which we as a self move through the world. That that's not even an unusual human experience from his vantage point. It's quite a typical thing to do. Stories are the thing that most of us use most of the time to frame our beliefs. The beliefs that we've been told, the beliefs we tell others, the beliefs we tell ourselves, we generally frame those with stories. And, and there's lots of reasons for that. But one is that stories are powerful and, and they have a kind of compactness um, about them. That means we can carry them with us through life. They, they have a, many of them have sort of a narrative shape. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, they have a sequence to them, another thing that our brains really love. They have patterns to them. They start somewhere and they go somewhere. And that somewhere can be, can be quite meaningful. And so those are all things that help us to remember stories and to be able to sort of take this relatively compact bundle of a story and apply it to a wide variety of circumstances and experiences as a way of, of meaning-making in those experiences. 
we can reference them that way and we can share them with others as well to bring meaning into their lives. And, and there's kind of a bonus component to that share and have other people kind of enter the story, which is that we can use stories to also um, sort of build the herd, uh, to gather other people who share the same story or a similar story around us. And that is something that we are also wired for. So lots of power in this, right? Lots of us have grown up with stories that have as one of their cornerstones the idea that even if life seems random from our perspective, it seems orderly or full of meaning from God's vantage point. And if we just stay close to God, everything is going to be okay. We, we might have even been told that if we just have enough faith, we can believe that everything that happens, even the most random seeming things, has a purpose or a reason. That idea that everything has a purpose is quite honestly one of my least favorite and most problematic ideas. Uh, I just feel like it's an idea that has done uh, untold harm. If we're committed to that idea, and, and we can be, I, I would say that we'd better brace ourselves for feeling painted in some rather difficult corners when things go sideways in life, when things happen that, um, that we weren't able to anticipate or, uh, or plan for, and that no one could have anticipated or planned for. I, uh, I ran across a story this week about a guy named Rob Nash. Nash is a musician. It's a hard rocker kind of dude. Uh, he had a deeply formative experience in his late teens that redirected his life. He was 17 years old, out joyriding with some friends, and uh, had a very serious car accident. And when he woke up from his coma, he learned that his heart had stopped, his skull was now held together with a bunch of steel plates, and his shoulder had been stitched back together over the course of several surgeries. He went, in his words, from being a six-foot, five-inch guy who was playing a lot of sports to being a six-foot, five-inch guy who was being bathed by his mom. He's pretty shattered. And healing for Rob has been a rough ride, not just physically, as you can imagine just from that little list, but mentally, and in terms of the story he tells himself about how the world works. He's had to work through feelings of survivor's guilt, of shame, embarrassment, and for him, those were all pinned to the why me question. And all of that has been made more difficult for him by folks that thought that they had the right to tell him why this had happened to him. In his words, quote, they told me it was fate, or they used the religious angle, that God punished me because I was a bad kid. The most common one was Everything happens for a reason. And I had to figure out the reason why I was hit by a semi-truck. And that brought me to a darker place. After a couple years in that darker place, someone came up to him and said, Hey, I think I know the reason you were hit by a semi-truck. You were going too fast on an icy road and shit happens. As Nash tells the story, that moment sounds simple, but it made him realize that he wasn't a puppet. That not everybody gets a second chance, and he should see what he could do with his. Everything happens for a reason might sound like a comforting story, but not if we don't know what the reason is. That's not how we're wired. That's not how our brain has evolved. And if there is some, you know, external to us holder of the reason who won't disclose it, 
we may now experience ourselves, as Nash did, as puppets in the hand of that holder. For Nash, that story needed to change. Not least of all because that story meant that he didn't feel free to share what he was going through. It, it, it put a lid on his struggles with mental health and made them a highly stigmatized, shameful experience. Because he couldn't, he couldn't believe that story, but he felt like he should. He was, in terms of his music, at that point on the cusp of having a musical career seriously take off, had a band that he had started that had some hits on the radio and uh, record deal, contract, all of that. And he walked away from all of that because somebody offered him an opportunity to use his music to tell his story to some high school kids. And what happened in that experience was so powerful that it redirected his life. Um, as he tells the story, they got called to come to a school. He's Canadian, come to a school in Ontario uh, where one kid had died by suicide and another kid had um, said that they were planning to, but nobody knew who the other kid was. They, they couldn't find out. So there was somebody who actually had a plan to uh, to end their life by suicide, but no one could intervene because no one knew um, who to intervene with. <laughs> and uh, And so Nash and the band showed up and Nash had this feeling like, I just need to tell my story, which publicly, which wasn't something he'd done. And he did that. And uh, he says a couple of things happened. One was that he said it felt like a 10,000 pound weight was lifted off his shoulders. And the other was that the kid disclosed and tore up the note and, and carried on. Nash now has a hundred and some names tattooed on his arms of kids who over the last 12 years as he's done this, have done that, have torn up the note, have posted something that showed that they'd done that, have changed their plan and uh, as, as a response to him telling his story. It's very powerful. You can, you can find them online, the Rob Nash Project. It's interesting stuff. They've created a living curriculum over the course of COVID because they couldn't get out and play shows in high schools anymore. Sometimes small adjustments in the story we tell ourselves can make a big difference, even a huge life-changing difference in how we live that out in our lives. And just to be clear, when I talk about changing the story we tell ourselves, I'm talking about changing what we believe. So if, if you're ever sort of wondering what the connection is between a talkie bit and why the table exists as a community, just ask yourself the question, what does this have to do with exploring what we believe? Uh, if I'm doing my part in the community, uh, even reasonably well, there should be a connection, you know. But just to make it explicit, that's what I'm talking about. Because unless we're, you know, fully delusional, the stories we tell ourselves about how the world works are the stories we live out of. The stories that most directly and deeply impact how we go through the day. Because that's how we're put together as human beings. In other words, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves is our beliefs. And when we change those stories, we're exploring, we're adjusting, we're evolving what we believe. Now, Rob's story is pretty dramatic. It's pretty heavy. And for him, the narrative that included the sort of deity that would cause harm to teach lessons sent him tumbling toward the end of his life by suicide and adjusting that story turned him around in a pretty spectacular way. It's not always that dramatic, which I would say is good news in the sense that we don't need to have what one of my uh, friends used to call a gut-wrenching in-testimony <laughs> to know what it means to adjust the story that we tell ourselves and see that adjustment make a difference, a positive difference. 
Uh, I have a book that I haven't referenced at the table for a while, um, but it remains something of a favorite for mine. Uh, Prayers from a Non-Believer, A Story of Faith, uh, this, this little gem, by Julia Cameron. Um, I've, I've had some folks ask me over the years where they could buy it, uh, and I'm sorry to tell you that as far as I know, it is out of print, uh, but the Googleverse being the big place that it is, there are still some used copies of it out there. Cameron wrote this book way back in 2003, and I think she had her creative sensibilities pretty tuned in to what was going on culturally in, in the North American zeitgeist in many ways, particularly the trend away from religious identity holding, but not away from faith or from being spiritual. And we'll explore this more another time, but I'm increasingly of the opinion that all of those nons, you know, the people who, if when you're filling out a survey and it asks you about your religious affiliation, they check the none, no, no affiliation box. Um, and so statistically, they're being bunched together as the nons. I'm increasingly of the opinion that all of those nons that keep showing up in that religious research are trying to create distance between themselves and a religious identity, not between themselves and spirituality or mystery. In fact, I would say that in a lot of ways, that is an effort to do something pretty much the opposite of that in many instances, in that people are finding that they really don't want to identify with any particular religion or religious institution. And we can all think of all sorts of reasons why we might not want to identify with a particular religious institution. But that faith, that the belief in or trust in what is not seen, remains very, very important to them. In any case, uh, Cameron is in that space where religion isn't what calls out to her, but the thought of a human-divine conversation really does, and so that's the spirit in which she writes the book. And it's it's a whole series of short little notes or prayers from a non-believer talking to a character that she calls God. And they all start, Dear God, which is is kind of delightfully uh, whimsical and also it feels like really honest in terms of her her story about the world. She's like, if I'm going to talk to somebody that I can't see, I want I want to name them and it feels right to me to name them God. And so that's what she does. So let me just read you one of these. Dear God, what is it that makes people want to point fingers and blame? Did I hear you say, let them off the hook? <laughs> I am distracted today. I want to point fingers and blame. I want to see if only they, bracket, would do what I want, close bracket, then I, dot, dot, dot. If only they would do what I want, then I could do X, right? The truth is that I want my life to change, but it's hard to put my shoulder to the wheel and to do it. For one thing, I picture change in such wholesale, terrifying ways that I leap back from the cliff yelping, I can't do that, meaning I can't move to France to get peace and quiet. No, but I could silence my phone. Or about exercise, I don't have time to train for a marathon. No, but I could walk on a treadmill for 15 or 20 minutes or get off a stop early on the subway and walk a few blocks. Or here's a really terrible idea, put on some old Beatles or Motown and dance for 10 minutes in the privacy of my own home. I could do a lot of things, small things, that I don't do because I think in such grandiose terms that I scare myself out of doing anything. I think, I should get a master's degree, not, I should take a piano lesson. I think, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, I need to get all new furniture, not, a little rug would help in front of the sink. Not, I could get a gizmo to hold all that shower stuff that keeps falling into the tub. The point is, 
I think I'm catching on to the fact that if I keep focusing on how you and all my global neighbors are botching up the world, well, then I don't need to get a bookcase or fix the shower curtain, do I? If I'm always focused on the big picture, I don't see ways to husband my little part of it, do I? Oh, you are sneaky, God. Or maybe you've mastered the art I am talking about. Maybe your eye is on the sparrow, so you don't have to look at the big picture either. Maybe one little bit, one short day at a time, this world is beautiful and doable after all. <laughs> That's sort of the tone of the book. I don't know if it feels like a delightful tone to you or otherwise, but it, it consistently feels that way to me. It's interesting to me that that, uh, you know, Eye on the Sparrow reference that uh, Cameron makes in this particular piece is taken from one of Jesus' teachings in the book of Matthew. And the point that he seems to be making is that we can, if we pay attention, see that everything is precious, beautiful, and valuable. We don't need a story in which everything has a reason if we have one in which everything has value. Now, that idea in the context of the verse includes the complexity that sparrows fall. And which is poetic language for die. And when they fall, they do not do so because they don't matter. Their loss, as with any loss or suffering, is noteworthy. Something beautiful has been lost, has died, is suffering, is laboring under duress. But that reality, over which we sometimes have agency and sometimes don't, can provide us with the opportunity to note the wonder we are surrounded by in the ordinary and everyday, as well as the complexity. We don't, as Cameron reminds us, need to picture change in such wholesale, terrifying ways that we leap back from the cliff yelping, I can't do that. We can look for it in the things that are around us all the time and start there. And we don't do such a thing, look around us at the small things and start there. We don't do that because of guaranteed outcomes. We don't do that because we now have a pattern that we can use to predict everything, to generate the delusion of certainty. We do it because it's what we have access to, because it's the part of the story that we may be able to change. What happens beyond that may well be out of view for us, which is what makes changing our story an act of faith, not an act of religious identity affirmation or propping up the notion of certainty in a world where shit happens, but an act of starting with what we can see and having it inform changes in our actions with things like hope, courage, and even dare I say it, happiness. I'm going to leave it right there for now. It's been good to be with you. Thanks for checking in. And uh, to those who pop by another time later in the week or who are listening by podcast, good to be with you in that way as well. Peace. <laughs>